You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 17. And if you don't have a Bible, you can reach in the seats in front of you and find Deuteronomy 17 on page 161. We're focusing on the next three sermons, this one, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, on this topic of king. And this Sunday, we want to focus on the coming king and really see why on Palm Sunday, the day that we celebrate today, the people were whipped into a frenzy. It's very easy for us to have situations where we get whipped up to a frenzy. I won't well, I will beat the dead horse. By the way, if, you're, if you have a horse or you're a horse lover, I don't mean to offend, but I'm beating the dead horse. And that is the championship game last Monday night. I was so looking forward to that. And I don't know what it was. Maybe it's that I grew up loving the Jayhawks and trying to perfect that logo on my school notes. And I died a little when I realized that there was no such thing as a Jayhawk bird. But the basketball team has redeemed that over and over again. And I was so looking forward to this championship became because unlike 2012, we actually had a chance. Remember the championship game of 2012 when we played against Kentucky and I just, I knew going into it, how bad are we going to lose? But Monday night we had a chance. And so everything last weekend was pointing me toward that championship game. On Monday, I got up, I put out my t-shirt, I put out all of my gear, ready for that game. Macy and I were on the same page. She was my partner as we went through March Madness. And we would watch those games together. We watched them and I was stressed and my girls were making fun of me because I was yelling at the TV and yelling at Coach Self going from he's the worst coach in the country to he's the greatest coach in the country. And at the end, culminating in, there is video to prove this, I actually cried. So, so why was that such a celebration? Why was that such anticipation? Why on Mass Street in Lawrence was there a massive crowd, all sizes and shapes and all ages celebrating and, and doing what we see in Mark 11 they were doing in Jerusalem when Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey? It's because there was great anticipation, great expectation for a coming event. And what I want you to see this morning is to see the big idea in your notes, and that is that we are wired to need a king, which that statement as Americans, when you think about our history, probably causes us to squirm. But we are wired to need a king, and there is only one fulfillment of that need. And we're going to do something different this morning than we typically do for sermons. Typically, we're in a book, we march verse by verse, but this Sunday, we're actually going to be going all throughout the Old Testament so that we can better understand why were the people so excited in Jerusalem in the first century, and why can we be even more excited? It's a long sentence, the outline is, and I would encourage you to write these down, but point number one is you and I need a king. You and I need a king. Deuteronomy 17 will lay the framework for that, that God's people need a king, but I'm going to do so by drawing from my past. It's hard to imagine a time in my life where life was going better than it was on that sunny day in 1997. 
It was September, and I was in my five-speed Honda Prelude. I had the moonroof back, and I was listening to a compact disc, which for some of you, I have to explain what that is. It's a little disc that would play music. We were so excited because it sounded crystal clear, and so Stephen Curtis was singing to me. I was like King of the Jungle or one of those songs, and I was just loving this. I just said goodbye to my teammates the day before. It was my first year of professional baseball. I had my Philadelphia Phillies batting practice pullover. I was heading back home to see my girlfriend, who I would propose to in the next few weeks. Life was good. And as I was flying down that New York interstate, I glanced over, and I I noticed there was a car parked behind the trees, deceitfully so. And as I glanced down at my speedometer, I was loving life too much, way above what the speed limit sign was. And so at that point, I was doing a trench warfare prayer. You know what those are. God, if you will just grant me this, I will never ask for anything ever again. Well, he granted it to me, but very differently than I was expecting, because that police car started moving. And it came in behind me, and the lights flashed, and he pulled me over. And thankfully, God's grace was sufficient. He gave me a warning. As I sat there waiting for my young heart to start beating again, I eased slowly into traffic, setting my speed, my cruise control for three to four miles under the speed limit. And I started thinking to myself, why do we need authority? I wasn't hurting anybody. This was my moment. Life was good. Why do I need authority? And I started thinking, what would happen if we had no speed limits? What would happen if we had no traffic laws or traffic signals? What would happen if we had no police? And the answer to that question is, it would be chaos. And in that moment, I realized what the Lord already knew, and that is that we need authority. We need kings. And as we arrive at Deuteronomy 17, we see that the People of God are getting ready to head into the promised land. And God knew that his people needed authority. In fact, what's interesting is that Deuteronomy 17, in the verses before the passage where we'll be, God lets his people know that you will need a priest. In chapter 18, he says, you as my people will need a prophet. And nested in between those two offices are verses 14 through 20 that say you also need a king. And the king ultimately would actually bring the prophet and priest offices together. God knew that his people needed authority. God knew that he had wired them to need a king. And as we arrive at Deuteronomy 17, we actually see that asking for a king is not wrong in and of itself. What was required is the right kind of king. You can see... In this passage, the right kind of king centered on the word of God. Look at verse 18. And when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law. Now in the ancient world, whenever there was an original document, it would be copied over and over and over again. And one of the benefits of that is that it could be sent out to multiple people. But another benefit of the copying of that original document was whoever copied it would become very familiar with that document. 
would understand that document in a way that others would not. And so it says that this king is supposed to write a copy of the law of the Lord. It says in verse 19, it shall be with him and he shall read it. He shall read it. But look, all the days of his life, it's not just like, okay, you've got to read this book and once you're done, you can do like you do to so many other novels that you read. You put it on the shelf and you never touch it again. This reading is to occur all the days of the king's life. But look at what it says. What is the objective? It's not just to be able to check it off your list. It's not just to be able to say that you've read it. It says, so that he may learn to fear the Lord. That word fear is not a, oh, I'm afraid. That word fear is used in the end of Ecclesiastes. Remember, King Solomon writes an entire book saying how many different things he pursued, how many different experiences he had had, and everything the world had to offer, Solomon experienced it. And he came to the end of chapter 12, and he says the end of the matter is this. Do you remember what he says? Fear God. Worship him. Beloved, listen, the the task and the privilege of reading the Bible on a daily basis is that we get to see God. It's not that we get to see ourselves. It's not that we somehow get to better understand our human experience. The ultimate benefit and privilege of reading this book is we get to see God. We get to see his character, and the more we see his character, if the Holy Spirit is in us, there will elicit within us wonder and awe. I was reading this morning in 2 Kings, studying about Elisha and Ahab and Jehoshaphat and all of these kings and all of these events that were going on and the widow who had the oil that was filled up over and over again and the wealthy woman who was barren and was able to have a child and then most likely that child died of an aneurysm and then uh, Elisha was able to bring him back from the dead and you're reading all of this and I don't see Elisha. I don't see Ahab. I see awesome God. And what we are experiencing in our lives, whether it be a black LED wall behind us and the hours that have already gone into troubleshooting that technology, whether it be your health, whether it be the struggles that we have in our society, God. And if God chooses not to change your circumstances, we still have God. And that should elicit for some Southern Baptists in this congregation to say amen. We read the word of the Lord to learn to worship him and fear him. And then the overflow of that is what it says in verse 19, keep his words. You know the difference between legalism And the obedience that God is looking for is legalism is focused on the horizontal. The obedience God is looking for is vertical. We don't obey to show others how obedient we are. We don't obey to somehow have God's favor then respond blessing to us. We obey because God, because he's awesome. Because I'm in awe of him. Because I'm reflecting on the fact that I was dead in my trespasses and sins. And he made us alive in Christ. God. 
This is the kind of king that we need, a king who copies the word of God, becomes so familiar with it, reads it to see the character of God, to learn to fear and worship him, and then obeys and keeps his commandments as a result. I don't know about you, but I feel like Buddy the Elf when I hear this, and I'm like, I want one. We are wired to need kings. We are wired to need authority, but the right one, which leads us to number two. You and I need a king who is more than stature. Who is more than stature. Would you turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 8? And as you're doing so, we're skipping over lots of pages of scripture. We're skipping over lots of history. So let me just bring you up to speed. The Jews did make their way into the promised land. And as they were there, they learned very quickly that they needed a king. In fact, the book of Judges is a a horrible commentary on the first generations in the promised land. And there's a recurring phrase in Judges. You remember what it says? In those days, there was no what? King. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And beloved, listen, that commentary on those generations of Israel is a commentary on our day. Because just like that young whippersnapper driving on a highway in New York, human beings are wired to say, it's not hurting anybody. This is my moment. This is my need. This is my identity. This is my, this is me. This is what I want. And everybody is wired to do what is right in their own eyes. And tragically, we live in a world today, not just a culture today, but a world today who is fanning that flame. And those first generations of Jews in the promised land did what was right in their own eyes. Why? Because they had no king, no accountability that was fulfilling Deuteronomy 17. We arrive at 1 Samuel and we see that things are not that much better. That priest of Israel was a man by the name of Eli. Chapter 2 verse 12 says that Eli's sons were worthless men. They were wicked men. And in fact, tragically, it says in chapter 3, verse 13, that Eli knew that his sons were acting wickedly, but he did not restrain them. Listen, parents, eyes up here for a moment. If you know that your children are acting wickedly, restrain them. And you might think to yourself, yeah, but they may not like me. They'll love you. Yeah, but it might be embarrassing to their friends. Who cares? Friends, if you know that your children are acting wickedly, restrain them now because guess what? It's not only about them, it's also about you. Because how God responds in chapter two of 1 Samuel is that he says, Eli, because you have not restrained your sons, I'm gonna cut off your generation from the priesthood. So he raises up a young boy named Samuel, and Samuel grows in wisdom and stature and favor with man. Sounds a lot like somebody in Luke 2, doesn't it? And everything looks like maybe this is going to be our Deuteronomy 17 fulfillment, but chapter 8 says, yet his sons, verse 3, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us 
a king to judge us. The elders got it. They understood there is a problem here. Human beings are wired to need accountability. We're wired to need authority. Why? Because on our own, we do what is right in our own eyes. So the elders at this point appear to get it. And they say to Samuel, appoint for us a king. But what is the king they are looking for? Look at what it says at the end of verse 5. Like all the nations. What's tragic about this is the criteria that they are using for their king is horizontal. This is what we typically do when we are looking for somebody to be on our team, isn't it? You remember the days of kickball? I know some of you might have PTS. But remember, there was two captains. And what was the criteria that those captains were using? It was usually one of two things. It was either skill or relationship. Most people, as a captain, did not pick the worst athlete that they did not know in their class. And the fact is, is that doesn't change. Think about the business world today. If a hiring manager is looking for somebody to hire, who are they looking for? Somebody who has skill or is going to advance them or their department. Think about colleges and what students are they looking to approve their applications. People who are going to actually help them as a school look better academically. People who have a better chance of graduating. When you're looking for a relationship with another person, usually you're wanting to be attracted to them. And listen, none of these things in and of themselves are wrong, but the reality is those are horizontal criteria and they will not satisfy And so what happens with Israel is Israel says, we know we need a king, but we think horizontal criterion is what will satisfy. Boy, did they get it. Look at chapter 9. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man, look at what it says, of wealth. It's a good candidate. It's a man of means. And he had a son whose name was Saul. It's like the author of Samuel wants to know. This is a, this is a looker. He's a handsome young man. In fact, not only was he handsome, there was not a man among the people more handsome than he was. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. This man had stature in spades. I mean, if you're looking for somebody who checks all the boxes that the horizontal nations would have been looking for, for a king, this was the man. He was unmatched. He won battles for Israel. He established Israel. But just as Israel had the motive that was horizontal, so did Saul. And tragically, Saul was motivated by horizontal results, not vertical devotion. This is what a king of stature typically does. Two things that he absolutely failed that resulted in the Lord's rejection of him. The first one was that usually kings, before they went out to battle, would make sacrifices. There would be a time of worship to have God provide favor for them. They would seek the Lord before they went out to battle. And the only one in this group that was qualified to have a sacrifice was Saul, uh, was uh, Samuel. And so Saul, though, seeing that Samuel delayed, 
knew that the clock was ticking. And so he's thinking horizontally. He's thinking the enemy is amassing and we've got to take the field. We've got to do it now. Therefore, I'm going to manipulate God's word. I'm still going to worship, but I'm actually going to do it myself. And so he took God's word and molded it in to be what he wanted it to be. And then in 1 Samuel 15, God commanded Saul to kill all of the Amalekites, leave nothing breathing. But as Saul was going through the king and the people and the animals, he realized, hey, this king could actually help my kingdom, thinking horizontally. He was looking at the animals saying, this could actually help our economy. And so what he did is he actually ignored God's word and he didn't obey it. Because of both of those failures, God rejected Saul. So at the end, this king of stature was overcome by the pride of life. And as a result, he chose religion over relationship. Friends, we need a king, but not like this king. We need a king who is more than stature. Number three. We need a king who is more than a soldier. We need a king who is more than a soldier. Would you look over at 1 Samuel chapter 3, 13, and verse 14. As the nations look for a potential king, they look at stature. They look at ability. They look at strength. They look at wealth. But chapter 13, verse 14 says, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. He, he told Samuel this. He said, listen, I, I have rejected Saul, but I am looking for his replacement to be an individual who is characterized by seeking after my heart. Now, Samuel is given the task in chapter 16 to go anoint the new king. And the Lord tells Samuel, go find the family of Jesse. And so he arrives at the family of Jesse, and Jesse parades his sons before Samuel in order of their age. And the first one comes, when you look at verse 6, it says he, Samuel looked on Eliab, and he thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. That's what the world does. That's what the nations do, because I have rejected him. So what kind of king is the Lord looking for? Remember Deuteronomy 17, but here he says it again. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so Samuel anoints David. And now Israel has essentially two kings. Flip over to chapter 17. A story that perhaps you're familiar with. It's the story of Israel waging war against the Philistines, their arch enemy. The representative of the Philistines is a giant man of tall physical stature by the name of Goliath. And every day he would come out in the valley and he would yell out to the nation of Israel and to their army and, and pronounce judgment upon them and threaten them and pronounce blasphemy against their God. David arrives at the scene to check up on his brothers and he hears the blasphemy of this giant. But you see the, the two kings present in this scene 
And the two kings are focused on two different motivations, two different resources. Down in chapter thir- or verse 38, it says that Saul clothed David with his armor. That's how Saul operates. Saul operates in the horizontal. If this young man is going out to battle against this veteran soldier, he's going to need armor. That's all he can focus on. But look at what David says back in verse 37. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul is looking at armor. David is looking at the Lord. And that is an incredible start for this shepherd turned soldier, isn't it? And if you study the rest of First and Second Samuel, you'll see that David had victory after victory. He was a warrior, unparalleled. Victory after victory. In fact, he had a tremendous track record of success. Track records of success are nice, aren't they? In the area of best baseball, it's hard to fill, find a more successful organization than the New York Yankees. I call them the Philistines of baseball. (laughs) So if you're a Yankees fan, I apologize. But I remember when I played minor league ball, we would play the affiliates of the New York Yankees, and it was fascinating how those players and the coaches and that whole organization carried themselves. There was an aura about them. They were cocky. They were confident. They were comfortable because of their track record of success, and guess what? We usually beat them. And that's what happens, isn't it? When there is a track record of success, there's often the tar pit of comfort. There's often the slippery slope of confidence. There is also often the threat of cockiness. Tragically, that's what happened to David. David's track record of success was actually mirroring Deuteronomy 17. In fact, you can write down Psalm 18, 21 through 22. David actually says in that Psalm that he read the word of God, he kept it, he obeyed it. He actually had a pattern of fulfilling Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 19. But here's what happened to David. Just like his predecessor Saul, he began to evaluate things logically and horizontally. David thought to himself, I'm a successful king. Our God does not have a house of worship. Therefore, I logically will be the one to build it. God said no. David, as a successful king, stood on a rooftop, saw a beautiful woman, did not care whether or not she was married, said, bring her to me. God said no. David, as a successful king, did what other successful kings did. Let's have a census. Let's find out what are the taxes going to be for the upcoming years. How many men will I have to serve in my army? God said, go ahead and do that, but it displeases me. David settled in to a track record of success, and tragically, he gave in to the lust of the eyes. Sadly, the man who shepherded God's people became a user of God's people, and he proved himself not the king that we should anticipate. You see, you and I need a king, but a king that is more than stature, a king that is more than soldier, a king, number four, who is more than supplied. You know, it's good when a king is supplied, isn't it? 
The king needs to have supplies, needs to have wealth, needs to have wisdom, needs to be favored by God. In fact, would you turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 7? It's fascinating to see how God is going to refer to Solomon. He's going to refer to Solomon as his son. You know what's interesting is that as you look through scripture, you would think that if any king would be called a son of God by God, it would be David. And yet God never calls David his son. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God is giving David his blessing, his covenant. Verse 14 says, I will be to him a father who, David's son, and he shall be to me a son. So you have everything aligning very well for this young king. Many kings have to spend the first few years of their kingship, first few years of their reign, amassing wealth, defeating other nations, but not King Solomon. In fact, listen to what it says in 1 Kings 4.24. He had peace on every side. Saul fought battles all of his kingship. David fought battles all of his kingship, but Solomon is handed a kingdom that has peace on every side. That's amazingly supplied. Then you have Solomon who says to God, when God says, like a genie in a lamp, I will give you anything, make a request. Solomon understood that it is not wealth It is not military that establishes a kingdom, it's wisdom. And so he asked from God, I need wisdom. And God said, I'm going to give that to you and so much more. In fact, in 1 Kings chapter 3, you see the first example of his wisdom where two women come to him, two women who had infant children. One of them was killed when the mom rolled over in her sleep. And both women claimed that the living infant was theirs. And Solomon's response was so wise that it it expanded like a ripple effect, not just in Israel, but into the entire known world. Where kings and queens from all over the known world actually traveled to Jerusalem just to hear Solomon talk. This man was well supplied. But then later on, you can look at 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 20 through 34. And you see the description of Solomon's wealth. And there was no one in the history of the world who was more wealthy than Solomon. And this is important, isn't it? Now, we live in a country where there are stories of self-made people. We live in a country where movies are made because somebody who came from poverty became wealthy. And that does happen, but the, the majority of those stories are rare. Most people live according to these axioms. You have to spend money to make money, don't you? You ever notice the majority of Americans that do well in the stock market? It's people who came to the stock market with money. Another phrase that I hear people say is that money greases the wheels. Yes, most of us have squeaky wheels. Another phrase, the rich get Richer, And that is true. As a pattern, as a norm, in order to be successful, you often need to be well supplied. And so it's very difficult to imagine someone who is more well supplied than King Solomon. In fact, read Ecclesiastes and you'll see he was incredibly supplied in every category that life has to offer. And yet, he was susceptible 
Because often the most well-supplied people are most susceptible to idolatry. Let me say that again. Often the most well-supplied people are the most susceptible to idolatry. Deuteronomy 17 warns against kings who would amass gold and horses. 1 Kings 10 says that Solomon amassed gold and horses. Deuteronomy 17 warns against kings who will amass women and wives. 1 Kings 11, Solomon amassed women and wives. The most well-supplied king ends up being a tragic reference. You know, what's interesting is that throughout First and Second Kings, throughout First and Second Chronicles, there were usually summaries of kings, and they would say, this king rose to power, and they reigned for so many years, and their mother was this, and either they did right or they did evil, and they would often be compared against predecessors. And Solomon is compared in these books, but only for what he built, and it's two things that he's recognized for building, the temple of God and the temple for pagan worship. This is tragic. The most well-supplied king is an illustration of failure. Friends, the fact is, is that none of these kings are the kings that swept up the crowd in Jerusalem on that day when a man rode in on a donkey. It's because all of those people present in Jerusalem understood we are wired to need a king. We are wired to need the right king, the the king who would fulfill Deuteronomy 17. We need that king. And they were expecting with great anticipation that this could be the one. And while he was, tragically, most of those crowds had the same objective as the elders in 1 Samuel 8. They wanted a king that met their horizontal expectations. So my question to you is, As we head into this Passion Week, are you looking for the king of Scripture? Is this the king who will satisfy the longing of your heart? 